Easter is a, is, a, is a season where we come to a celebration where we celebrate a couple exchanges, a couple deals that we've made. Watching Steve's video, I'm reminded that that's the most ultimate deal. It's the greatest exchange that we could ever take. It made me think about some of the bad deals that we take in our lives, the bad deals that you've taken. I won't ask you to out yourself, but anybody here ever buy a car that they thought, ugh, what would I buy that car? And the guy that sold it to you, you saw him at the grocery store the next day and you had to restrain yourself from getting arrested? <laughs> Bad deal, right? I read a, a story recently of a, of a woman who lived in France uh, in 1975. She was 90 years old. And uh, she lived in this little apartment that was right in the middle of the town. It was really beautiful, as charming as, I guess, French apartments can be. And there was a, a, a lawyer. And if you're a lawyer here today, we love you. But he did what lawyers do. He wanted the apartment. He saw this woman, was 90 years old, and thought to himself, hmm, I, I bet I could figure this out. And so as a 47-year-old lawyer, he decided he was going to um, make a deal with this woman that he would pay her $500 a month just for the rights that when she died, uh, he would get the apartment. That's a good deal, because if you think about that, do the math, even if he lived, she lived for another 10 years, that would only be a fraction of what the apartment was worth. And so, uh, kind of uh, against our better judgment, this woman signs over this agreement saying, sure, I'll take $500 a month from you, and when I die, you can have my apartment, no matter how much you give me. And um, nobody was prepared for what happened next, especially not the lawyer, because he would come to realize, as the months turned into years, and the years turned into decade, and the decade turned into decades that he had made a deal with the woman who would eventually become the Guinness Book of World Records <laughs> oldest human in history. <laughs> and it was actually on his deathbed at a 77-year-old lawyer when he asked for the tally of the amount that he had given to this woman, Miss Calme, uh, how much have I paid her for this apartment I never will live in? And it ended up to be $180,000, twice the value of what the apartment was ever worth. Bad deal? Bad deal. Absolutely bad deal. Absolutely bad deal. So that kind of puts into perspective your cold car thing, right? Like you all feel better now. Today is Easter, and Easter, um, if you're confused about what Easter is with all the hoopla and the candy and the Cadbury eggs and all that, Easter is a celebration of a solution to a problem. It's God's way of getting us out of our bad deal that we've made together as humanity. Easter is a, a time where we celebrate the fact that each one of us had made a deal, that we had exchanged something, gotten us into a little bit of trouble, and needed a way out, and Easter is God's solution to our great problem. That's what I want to talk with you about today, is the exchange that God made to get us out of our great problem. We're talking today about exchanges, exchanges, deals that, that we've made. And... Um, before we get to the great exchange, we have to understand the problem. And uh, if you've been coming to Bethel for a couple of weeks now, you know that we, what we do here is we, we try and understand the faith that we have by opening up God's word that he wrote. And we go through large chunks of the Bible at a time. We'll, we'll go through an entire book at a time trying to understand just to make sure we get the message clear. And so we just started looking at this letter that one guy, the Apostle Paul, wrote hundreds of years ago to the first church, and he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in the church uh, of Rome, there were some things that were happening. They wanted to, to know a couple things about this guy, Paul. And Paul wrote to them the most succinct, the most accurate description of the problem of humanity 
and God's solution for it. So good that no blog, no podcast, no seven-step program will ever help you understand the problems you have in your life the way the book of Romans will. And in Romans, Paul says that our problem with ourselves is not your health or your family or your job or your finances. Specifically, the problem that we have that Easter addresses is a problem, check this out, with, with God. We all have a problem with God. Namely, Paul's going to tell us that God is holy, which means he has no sin, and he is just, which means he always does what is right, and you and I are not holy and not just. And if you're not an amen person, that's fine, but if you feel that that's true, you can just say that's true. Right? I mean, like, like we understand in this world, you don't, you don't have to sit here and go like, damn, there's seven billion people here, and surely I'm in the top million of the people in the world. You're still at fault somehow, aren't you? So we understand that there's a problem that we have, and Paul says the problem that we have with each other is one thing, but the problem that we have with God is another. It's the whole problem. It's the whole thing. Because God's justice requires punishment for our moral sins against God's holy standard. And you're like, this is supposed to be Easter, Dan. Bright colors and crocuses and daisies and tulips and, and exciting things. But you're telling me about a problem I have with God. And let's look at the Bible because it's about to get worse. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. This is what Paul tells us is, is the problem that we all have. It says, um, that third word's going to catch your attention. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's, that's the problem that you and I have. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, not fake news, but like ignoring the truth that exists. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. God is eternally powerful and divine in his very being. That has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So there's a lot to unpack for us here, but notably I want to draw your attention to the wrath of God. We can't skirt around it. We have to understand it. And to understand God's wrath, Paul makes this argument. Uh, he says that God's wrath is being kindled against the problems of humanity, against the wickedness that exists in our own hearts. Why? Because very simply, we refuse to acknowledge and live according to the idea that God created everything. If you want to boil it down to what it comes down to, we reject the idea that there is a creator and his name is God. Every day, we ought to realize the eternal power of God and his divine nature because within everything he created, he left a little clue as to what he's like. So every day that you wake up and you drink a cup of coffee and you look outside in your backyard and perhaps there's a little deer grazing in your grass very pleasantly and your instinct is to go get a shotgun, <laughs> you are exercising dominion over the earth like God created you to do in Genesis chapter 2. And if you're a hunter, you're welcome for that justification. If um, you look at my, thank you, Adrian. We'll ask you when hunting season starts. When um, I look out of my yard in the backyard right now, I see crocuses and daisies and tulips all rising up out of the ground right now. I love that Easter happens at springtime because it, it's as if the whole world is performing a resurrection of its own sort. We, we look out and we know what the creator is like based upon what he's made. 
I recently watched on Netflix a show that was all about the Unabomber. And some of you remember that um, time in our nation's history very well, and you remember the Unabomber, and um, this story was told through the lens of an FBI profiler. And this was his job. His job was this, to study, to study who the creator was based upon the evidence of the bombs that he had created and figure out who this person was and where they lived so that they could stop them. But the basic idea of this man's job was to examine the evidence of what this person has done and tell us who he is. And each one of us have that investigative responsibility inside of our hearts to look around at the world, look around at our lives, and to to see God's fingerprints all around us at work in ways that if only we had eyes to see, we would see it. And so we see in God that he is whimsical and loving in his creatures. He is strong and bold in his mountains. He is timely in his seasons. He is faithful in the rising and the setting of the sun. You can know a lot about God by what he's made. And so if you've ever been the guy who sat up in the deer stand in the forest, if you've ever been the the person who has um, gotten up early and looked at the sunrise across the lake, if you've ever stared out at your backyard in the summertime to see the fireflies light up the darkness, if you've ever taken your feet to the edge of a canyon to look over the vastness of what God's made, if you've ever put your feet out in the sand looking over the ocean, you have probably probably felt the fact that you are small. You've probably felt the fact that there's got to be something more than just happenstance because we feel the creator because we were designed to know the creator. And at the end of verse 20, Paul tells us this, He says, because we can feel the creator, because we know the creator, look at what he says. He says, so they are without excuse, which is ultimate bad news because Paul's trying to understand the human heart enough to say that when we're confronted with our problems, the thing that we want to do is justify our actions. We want to say, hey, nobody ever told me that was a problem. Hey, nobody ever told me that I was supposed to honor you, God. Nobody ever told me that, that, that you were the reason I was here. You can't, you can't have your wrath fall on me. I'm ignorant. And Paul's cutting us off from the excuse. He says, you've been given by God eyes to see what he's doing all around you in this world. And so we feel it. And that feeling condemns us for failing to live with God as our ultimate goal, making us subject of his wrath. And although we know a lot about God based upon what he's made, Paul says that we as a people, we choose to suppress the truth, to to, to push it down, to get it out of our minds so that we can go on living the way that we want to live. Look at what he says next. This is gonna bring us to our main point here. And Paul says, for although they knew God, And isn't it true, a lot of people in Northwest Indiana know God, about God, should see God. Doesn't these next few verses perfectly uh, talk about us? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they... If you have a Bible in front of you, circle this word, highlight it in your phone, just put this in your notes. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's our problem. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In a few simple sentences, Paul has just summarized human history and human frailty perfectly. 
What's wrong with the world? Here's what's wrong with the world. We gave up the truth of God for a lie. We exchanged it. We made a bad deal. We exchanged the truth about who God is and how he created us to, to live in a lie. You're like, well, Dan, I don't understand how that is. Well, we know God is the creator. We see him all around us. We see that as his creation, we have our purpose in him. But we've suppressed that truth. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And the truth that Paul is talking about is very simply this. Because here's, here's, here's the question you have. Well, what's the truth? Very basic. You don't need to go to seminary to figure this out. The truth is that the creator is greater than his creation. Can I just hear like you agree with that? Amen? Like the creator is always greater than his creation. I have a son who's three years old and um, Miles is pretty cute. He, um, he builds things. He like makes block towers and little t- structures and things. And um, Sometimes Miles would come home from our kids' ministry with like these little crafts that he does, he does here and sometimes they'll be all proud of him. Like he did it all by himself. And I'll look at it and I'll go, I can tell. This looks like a three-year-old did this. And um, I always look at what my son makes, and while it's cool, it's nowhere near as cool as he is as a person. My relationship with my son far outweighs anything that my son could build, right? The creator is always more important than that which he makes. And this is so true about God, because he is the uncaused first cause. He is the one by whom nothing created him. God always has been. He's always existed. And he's, as such, he has his rightful first place over the things that he has made, And so you don't need me to break this down for you. We all get it. All the way back in the beginning, God breathed his breath into our lungs and gave us existence. And then as as creatures, as the creation, not one of us here can take credit for our existence. I mean, there's kids in the room, so I'll watch how graphic I get, but not one of you can claim to be a fast swimmer. Not one of you can be like, wow, I was really good, uh, and I willed myself into being. No, 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 all of us have been born, all of us have been made. And all of us, as such, as the creatures, depend upon something outside of ourselves for our very existence. And that's what it is for us to see the creator as greater than the creature. And the lie, the lie then, is that Instead of me worshiping the creator and understanding that all that I have is to be put to use the way the creator created me to be, we exchange that truth. We fail to be as human as we possibly can the way God created us. We exchange that for lesser humanity. And here's the lie. The lie is simply this. I don't need the creator. I am the creator. I am better than the creator. And deep within each and every one of our hearts is this thought that has totally jacked our lives up. Paul says this is the foolishness of our hearts. In chapter 3 of the Bible, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're enjoying all the gifts of God, and a snake comes along and points out that God had one thing they shouldn't eat. It was fruit from a particular tree, fruit that when eaten, God said it would cause them to surely die. And the snake suggests to Eve Well, the creator is just simply withholding from you. You won't actually die. No, you'll never be more alive. You'll be enlightened. You'll you'll, you'll understand that this fruit has been suppressing your race for a long time. And don't you want to be just like God? Taste it. Go ahead. You deserve it. We traded the truth 
that God is more important than us for the lie that we can live like we are God. And listen, it wasn't the fact that Eve, her lips touched the fruit. It was the spirit inside of her of rebellion against God, the act of treason against God's created order in which she told God and Adam told God, forget you, God. We don't want a relationship with you any longer. We just want to be like you. We, we want your ruling power. We, we don't want you. We just want what you've made. It's a spirit of defiance and Paul tells us in Romans 5, the devastating effects of this great exchange, exchanging the truth of God for this lie, it did indeed bring about death into the world. And through one man, death reigned until it came all the way down to 2018, where you and I, all of us have at the end of our lives, awaiting us a death. It reminds me, this trade of that gothic story. Some of you read books. Good for you. That gothic story of Frankenstein. You, you know the story? Frankenstein's not the monster. Frankenstein's the doctor. And Dr. Frankenstein's monster was created by Dr. Frankenstein. And it's this really interesting story. But all of a sudden, at the, uh, the, the climax, the monster realizes that um, the, the doctor is no good. And instead, he turns on him and he seeks his blood. Okay, so you don't read. That's fine. There's a movie <laughs> with Tom Hanks in it called The Captain, and the idea is a true story. Tom Tanks plays this captain who's a captain of this cargo ship, and Somali pirates take over this cargo ship. And there's this scene, I don't know if, you didn't have to see the movie, it was in all the previews, there's memes of this everywhere, uh, where, where the Somali pirate in this really classic moment, he, he's terrifying the captain, and he takes over the ship and he says, I'm the captain now. And Paul says this is exactly what the human race has done to God. We've hijacked his, his world and hijacked his worship and put it upon the worship of something that is lesser than God. We, we've, we've told God, get out of the way, get, get out of the ship, get out of the captain's room, get, we're going to take it from here, thank you very much. And the scale of tragedy of this could be observed by comparing this to what would happen in our world if in the created order, this, the, the planets which revolve around the sun somehow could deny the sun. So at the center of our solar system, I'm really good at science, I just want to show off for a second. Here's what I know. The center of our solar system are, is the sun. It's a really big, hot ball of fire, technical terms. And it anchors the gravitational pull and the path and the orbit of the planets such that these massive rocks can be suspended around each other in predictable patterns, but also aligned in such a way that they never collide. They dance around each other, but they never jump out of line. Why? Well, there's a lot of great scientific reasons for this, but the, the simplest, most accurate description is because the solar system is finely tuned by God to revolve around the sun, period. That's how it was made. Such that you and I can enjoy a, um, a summer day in northwest Indiana one day out of the year where it's really nice. <laughs> Wish our rotational axis would have been a little tweaked, but that's fine. But say, for the sake of argument, that the planets were able to deny the created order and to suppress the truth that they were created to revolve around the sun and be anchored by the sun. If the planets could do this and sever themselves from the nucleus, the whole thing would implode in a nuclear reaction so vast it would make Kim Jong-il's and Donald Trump's buttons on their desk look like nothing. We would be gone. 
And this is what we've done, Paul says, to God. Though we knew God, we did not honor him as God, nor submit ourselves in thankfulness to him, but we decided to follow our hearts. I want you to look back in the text. What does God do? What does he do? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Say that with me. God gave them up. He went like this. God gave them up to the desires that they had. And friends, when I talk about the wrath of God, you picture in your mind Zeus, the Greek god of thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. But the wrath of God actually looks like this. When God hears us say, forget you, God, I want it my way, God, in his wrath against us, just says, okay. See, sometimes the most damning thing God could ever do to us is to let us have our own way and to live our lives as if we're the masters of our own fates, captains of our destiny, and leaving God outside of it, thinking that we know better than God. This is what we call the passive wrath of God. So God gives us up to our desires, allowing us to indulge in whatever we wanted. The whole time, he knew that the consequence of that indulgence was gonna lead to death. It wasn't gonna be freedom, but it would be slavery. You ever listen to Tom Brady when he talks about waking up the day after he won the Super Bowl? Here's, here's Tom Brady. He's the guy that married that girl and has all that money and looks like he does when he's 40, but he looks like he's 18. That guy. Woke up one day after winning the Super Bowl and asked the question, is this all that there is? And you and I want to be like, stop talking, Tom. Like, quit it. But his confession is, I've never been more successful, so why am I so unsatisfied? And that's the problem in our hearts. The reason is because we put our worth in something that isn't worthy of our worship or our sacrifice. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've worshiped the lesser God. The word the Bible uses to describe this is the word idolatry. And when I talk about idolatry, you might be thinking about like a little, little trinkets and things that you can go buy over in India. But, but the reality about idolatry is that it's any thought, any desire, anything that we have that we orient all of our lives, passions and pursuits after to go get and we replace the God of the universe with this thing. I had a pastor once who told me that good things are bad things when they crowd out the best thing. And even good things can become idols, things like family. And taking care of yourself can become idols. Our time and our money, they flow effortlessly to our idols. We may not call them gods, but all the signs of religious worship are there. We dedicate our time. If it was taken out of our life, we would be crushed. And so if you trace your calendar and your, uh, your, your credit card receipts and your browser search history and your most recent 25 pins on Pinterest or your last five posts on Instagram, you will have a direct line to the idol of your heart. The idols of our hearts lie to us and tell us that we can be the master of our universe, that we can be greater than the creator, that you can be the creator. And as a pastor, um, I've seen I've seen behind the facades of your really nice Christmas card pictures and your posts on Facebook. You've sat in my office and told me what life is really like. 
I know the gods that people are chasing, the gods that we hope will save us, they turn out to be incredibly disappointing. Like, you can live for money, but someone else is always going to have more than you. And you can live for the perfect family, but your kids will never act the right way. You can live for the approval of others, and you'll quickly be stunned at how little time other people actually think about you. You could live for beauty or the perfect body, and you can be enslaved to the gym or eating disorders or Botox. You can live for career advancement, and you'll cost you your family. You can live for possessions or cultural markers of success, and you'll never have enough of them. You can live for sex, and no partner or porn can ever satisfy you. You can live for politics, and your political heroes are going to disappoint you. Live for anything other than the one true God, and in the end, we will despair because ultimately we die and none of these replacement gods have anything to offer in the next life. They ruin us in this life and they damn us in the next. And all the while, we're going on our way, God giving us up, he's right there at the same time whispering to us, I'm here. I'm here, I still see you. I still know you. I want you to come back because I love you and I made you and I know the way that your story ends and I can help it end good. The whole time God in his creation shouts back to us, hey, would you look at me? Would you come back to me? I want you. God offers us way more than we ever dared, hoped, or imagined. The problem is we don't dare hope or imagine. C.S. Lewis said it brilliantly this way. I'll just quote him. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. And then see if this isn't true. We're half-hearted creatures, Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And this reminds me of my three-year-old son, Miles. Miles has tasted and sampled in his long 36 months on this planet all of the delicacies of life. And he can categorize the food pyramid this way. This is the food pyramid according to Miles. <laughs> so at the bottom, in case you can't, it's complex. In case you can't get it, the bacon's the foundational food group. And all the men said, come on, right? Suggested five to seven servings a day. And at the top, in that little, like, you sparingly type of thing, it's everything else. And so Miles... Um, well, this actually isn't really true of him now. Mommy's been fighting a battle with him and winning. Good job, Mom. But for a while, Miles would come down in the morning, and he would go, Dad, I want bacon. I'm like, okay, breakfast, I'll make you some bacon. Great. And then 10 o'clock would roll around, and we'd give him some grapes or some fruit or an orange or something, and he'd say, yeah, how about bacon? <laughs> and dinner would come around. My wife would make amazing food, and um, Miles would say, I, I just want Bacon. And at first, can I just tell you what I thought in my heart at first? Like honest confessions of a dad. I thought to myself, yes, he is a chip off the old block. Like you go, Miles. You enjoy your bacon, man, because high cholesterol runs in your family and it's going to get you later. You get it now, man. 
But then I started like trying to give him some good stuff. Like one day Kristen made filet mignon because that's just how we roll at the Jacobson house. It's <laughs> not how we roll. But, but she, made, she made some steak and I, Miles saw it and he goes, hey dad, what's that? And I selfishly was like protecting my food. Thought, ah, I should give the kids some, he'll like it. It's essentially bacon that moves. And um, I said, buddy, it's, it's, uh, it's steak. Do you want to try it? And without even flinching, he goes, I know like it. I want bacon. <laughs> the other day, we got uh, M&Ms for Easter, and I was, had a whole handful of them. I was like, hey, Miles, you want some chocolate? He goes, no, I know like it. I want bacon. And, and here's the point. It's cute when you're three. But when you're 33 or 53 or 73, and you refuse to let go of control of your life because you think you know best. You're just like the kid who's been promised a vacation to the Bahamas, but you're like, I don't even know if they're that nice. I like my mud pie right here in my slum. It's all I've ever known. My parents grew up in the slum. I've got slum values. I, I, I love the slum. I'm gonna live in this. I'm gonna die in the slum. All the while, something better is being offered to us if only we would have the eyes and the courage to embrace it. And so here we are, at the end of the day, we're enslaved to our own foolishness, we're eating bacon and making mud pies, worshiping and serving our lesser gods. That's our problem right there. But Easter, Easter is a day where we realize that while God gave us up, he did not give up on us. Easter is a day, well, when God in his passive wrath allows us to get that which we want, he didn't stop pursuing us. And there are a couple exchanges of Easter that the rest of our time here, I just want to point them out briefly. While we exchanged the creator for creatures, God did something about it. He, he exchanged his glory as the creator, and he became a creature. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, his coming to earth in the form of a human. Have you ever thought about how actually human Jesus was? History has proven the, the historicity of Jesus time and time again, and yet sometimes we leave him in this fairy tale land. Jesus had a name. It was given to him by his dad, his stepfather. He was born in a place. It was in Bethlehem. He, he was raised in a hometown. It was Nazareth. Jo Joseph taught him a trade. He was a carpenter. He walked the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea and Samaria. His whole life was lived within a radius of 90 miles. It makes you feel a little better about being born and dying in northwest Indiana, right? Jesus did the same thing. Stayed in his hometown. He lived and he came. He was God in human form. The, the, the creator exchanged his glory for our dust. And by his third decade on earth, about the same age that I am, he started to reveal to people his power as the creator. He healed sickness. He made blind people see. He stopped the waters from raging. He fed thousands of people. He even raised people from the dead. No one could accuse him of, of any wrong. He was full of grace and truth. He was the best person who ever lived. One day he became a big enough threat to the powers that be. He was wrongly convicted of fabricated charges. They condemned him to public, public execution. The Romans preferred crucifixion, which is essentially death by suffocating and torture. And once again, man looked at God and spat in his face and said, no thanks God, we don't want you, we want our stuff. We want your power. We want your authority. And on that Good Friday, once again, mankind exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
but the exchange of Easter was just about to take place. The Bible's going to tell us that though Jesus was condemned to die by humans, he was actually, as God, willingly suffering the wrath of God in our place. And see, we only have an Easter because we have a Good Friday. And on Good Friday, Jesus made an ultimate exchange. He exchanged his life for our death under the active wrath of God. The, the wrath of God by which all of the punishment for our sins was laid out on the cross and Jesus absorbed the brunt of all of it. You may have walked in this church today and I just hear about people feeling like this. I don't know if this is you, but you feel like I've done so many bad things, but my neighbor invited me to come to church today, but I feel as if I walk through the doors, God's gonna smite me. And I want you to know that there's good news for you because on Good Friday, Jesus exchanged his life for your death so that you wouldn't have to be smitten. You don't have to be, be afraid of walking through these doors anytime because our God has satisfied his wrath on Christ. Jesus literally took our place on the cross. It was him dying in my place for my sins. The innocent in the place of the guilty. We ask, well, how just is that? And the answer is, not just to us. But God in his justice and judgment had paid the penalty for our sins by taking the punishment himself. A couple of Times in scripture we read about this. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. Notice the language of exchange here. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Peter, a disciple of Jesus, wrote it this way, kind of summarizing this. He said that he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And in all of this, Jesus took our place under the wrath of God for our sins. And in that, God crushed Christ. Good Friday reminds us that God saved us, not just from ourselves, not just from the devil, but God saved us from, paradoxically, himself. The big problem that we have underneath the creator is that we've rebelled against God. God solved that problem by exchanging his life for our death. Which brings us to the great exchange of Easter. Only the creator could destroy the enemy of all created things, which is death. And we believe, if you're here today, you just wonder, like, what is Easter all about? We believe this. Not just because the Bible tells us so, but because people saw it happen and it changed the course of entire human history. We believe then on that third day, after he had died, Jesus got up out of that grave and rose again to newness of life, and he changed everything. Now, on Good Friday, he exchanged his life for our death. And Easter Sunday, Jesus exchanged our death for his life. He totally undid the whole process. He picked his life back up. He said, no longer do we have to worry about death. That's done. It's gone. I'm going to pick up my life again. We're going to live now not in death, under the fear of death, under the tyranny of death, under the slavery of death, but you can live your life under the eternal life of your creator. Jesus exchanged our death for his life. And I think about all the things that Jesus exchanged that Easter Sunday that no one saw, but we saw the effects. We, we know that Jesus started the day in a tomb, and he exchanged his dwelling because at the end of the day, his disciples found him back in a garden. He exchanged his uh, 
company, beginning early in the morning with watches of guards and enemy soldiers nearby. But once he arose, the soldiers disappeared and he was again amongst his friends. He exchanged um, his advertising. It's kind of a cool thing. Where it used to be a tombstone marked his grave that proclaimed to the whole entire world he's dead. God rolled that thing away and he positioned in its place an angel pronouncing the greatest news, announcing to the entire world, telling everyone he is not here. He is risen. Of all the things that Jesus exchanged, amen. He exchanged the trappings of our death for all the blessings of his eternal life. And this is the great exchange that undoes our first exchange. This is the the great deal that God makes with us to undo, undo that first deal that we did with him. Because the creator blew up our death by rising from the dead. He went through death to get over death. It's good news of God's good solution to our great problem. And since we know that Jesus is alive, we know these two things to be true. Friends, this is such good news. Your sins are paid in full. Stop beating yourself up. Like some of you are here today in church because this is what we do on, as people. We come to church. It's Easter. We're Americans. <laughs> and some of you don't care what type of church it is. You just want to go to the closest church, which is why we want to be a church in your neighborhood. But you come here because you're like, if I just go, then God will like me for a day. What a horrible way to live. Trapped under your unfound expectations that God is a God of Zeus-like lightning. When in reality, God is a God of sacrificial love seen on the cross. So friends, your sins are paid for. I don't care who you are or what you've done. I mean, we've had people in our church who have had rap sheets that have caused us to like have conversations with them about it. And you know what? More welcome here than anywhere else. Why? Because at the cross, all of our sins are paid for. Because Jesus is alive, not just because he died, but because he's alive, we got we to celebrate this. The wrath of God is satisfied. And you don't need to pay for it again. You don't need to, to, to crucify Christ again. He's, he's taken the wrath once for all. And those who believe in him and receive him as their savior, they never have to worry about the wrath of God again. Jesus took the wrath of God in your place, which allows us once more to be in this right relationship with God. No longer does sin rule over this world absolutely, but Jesus is restoring all things. He wants your life to change. Because Jesus is alive, your life can change. And all you have to do is wave the white flag to worship and serve him, the creator who is blessed forever. And so this is Easter. That Jesus traded your sin for his life. If you would just accept that and to welcome him as the Lord of your life and to let him take your sins from you. Reminds me of uh, my friend Steve who we showed his video right before I came up on stage and preached. Steve um, died not too long ago. I remember the email that Bob sent out to our staff to let us know the good news. Because days before Steve died, he gave up all of his sin to the Lord. Which is quite a miraculous thing because it tells you that um, no matter who you are or what you've done, God wants you. It's not too late. As long as you have a pulse, you have a purpose. So 
Steve heard the gospel from his niece who ironically came to our Crown Point campus two years ago and heard the gospel herself. Jesus became her priority. She, she exchanged worshiping created things to worship again the creator. And while Steve's life was marked by slavery to his idol of alcohol, and while his family tried to save him and while they pleaded with him to stop and while they tried to distract him from medicating himself, nothing could change Steve except what happened just days before he died. When he heard the news of who Jesus was, that Jesus loved him, his heart softened, and he became a part of God's forever family. And let me show you a picture of what alcohol could never do to you. This. This is the picture of someone whose life has been absolutely changed to joy. This is the picture of someone who was looking for everything in the wrong place, but finally found freedom and a hope, and, and in the face of death, found a reason to live. This is the promise of Easter, that Christ and his cross is the invitation to leave the slum and the mud pies and experience real life with the real God enthroned in your heart. And I want to give you a time right now where you can respond to Christ right now. Would you just close your eyes where you're at? Let's have a moment just to reflect upon our own lives. You know, alcohol may not be your God, may not be your idol, but the truth about all of us, having exchanged the truth for a lie, is that we have in our hearts things that replace God. And I wonder right now in this moment, if, if God is impressing into your heart, even if you're saved by the cross and you have faith in him, what is the thing that's been taking first place from God in your life that you need to give over to him? And I am thinking right now, even in this room with so many people here, that one or two of you actually want to give your life to Christ today. That you've heard the fact that God is loving you and he, you've seen him and you know it's true that, the, that all of this was made for him. And you want to give up your striving and you want to let God do his healing work in your life. If that's you, can, can I just lead you in a prayer of confession? There's nothing magical about this. It's not actually this that saves you. It's your faith in Christ. But we demonstrate that faith by starting a relationship with him. If you'd love to start a relationship with, with Jesus today, I just want to lead you in this prayer. You can repeat after me in your own heart, not out loud, but just silently. You can just simply say this, God, I understand that I've traded you for other things. God, I know in my heart that this is real. And I'm sorry that I've been suppressing the truth and I've been rejecting you, but I'm here right now to wave the white flag and to accept you as the creator you are, the savior of my soul. God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross in my place, that he exchanged his life for my death. But I also believe, God, that on the third day, he exchanged my death for his eternal life and that by believing in him, I can have eternal life. And right now, I believe that he has saved me. I believe that he is God. I believe that he's my Lord. Father, come into my life, save me from my sins, and help me to live in newness of life. Friends, if you prayed that.